Welcome to Season 2 of Conscious Conversations, where we aim to inspire deep and meaningful interactions that grow into a community of practice that is committed to healing, resilience and expansion. In this season, our focus is on Africa, the fountain of humanity the great mother Africa, a land research is increasingly confirming to be home of the first humans to evolve. Research also confirms that early humans migrated out of Africa into Asia about 2 million years ago and into Europe about 1.5 million years ago. The long and short of it, Africa is where it started. In this season's Conscious Conversations, we speak with spiritual teachers and thought leaders about the ways in which we can unearth the wisdom of the old that calls us back to listen, learn, remember, restore and heal. I am Mabato Munzi. Welcome. African people were uprooted from their long-standing indigenous agricultural way of life, which involved maintaining a harmonious relationship between communities, nature, and traditional religious practices. These practices involved ceremonies, festivals, and rituals in alignment with the cycles of the seasons. Embodied and acted and reinforced in these traditions were sacred values communicated between communities and Mother Earth. The community rituals often included agricultural rituals designed to persuade the gods and ancestors to deliver rains and successful harvests and to guarantee healthy livestock. Through colonization and urbanization, African people were removed from their way of life adversely affecting their ability to nurture and protect natural resources in order to ensure food production and sustainability at a local level. In this conversation, I speak with Dr. Bonile Bama, where we aim to gather insights around how the abandonment of African traditional religious practices among Africans has negatively impacted our abilities to connect with the earth nurturing a symbiosis between communities, nature, and God. Dr. Bonile Bama, also known to many as Baba Songin Daba, is an agricultural economist and a business strategist by training with a master's degree in agriculture, a master's degree in business leadership, and PhD degrees. He has more than 30 years' experience as a civil servant, lecturer, researcher, an agribusiness operator, and director of companies. Dr. Bama has served as a member of the Presidential Commission on Rural Financial Services in South Africa. He has served as chairperson on various boards, such as the Board of Land Bank, the Agricultural Research Council, the Johannesburg Fresh Produce Market, and others. Sure, that is an incredible career. How are you, Baba? Uh, thank you very much. I am fine, except that outside it's quite hot, but I'm okay. It's very, very hot. Yes. Your career is very impressive. Please take us through... A little bit about who you are and how you got to be where you are in your journey. 
let me start by saying uh, I became an agriculturalist by default because uh, my ambition was to do other things, one of them being medicine, uh, being a doctor. The other one, I was looking at uh, uh, being a, a, a scientist. But at Forte, when I was there, I saw an opportunity in terms of passaries to become a, 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 an agriculturist. And I got the passary because I'm coming from a background, you know, where money was scarce. Mm. So I had to take the opportunity of getting the passary from the Siskind government then. And I studied BSc Agriculture from 1979 76, actually, to 1979. Sure. I wasn't even an idea at that yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a long time, mm. yes. And then um, having worked briefly as a civil servant, I went on to work at the University of Zululand as a lecturer in cooperative management and administration, which was a diploma I started there at the University of Zuland. I was there for about two and a half years, after which I got appointed as a principal of Fort Cox College of Agriculture at the age of about 26 years then. Mm. Whilst I was there for another two, 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 two and a half years, I got promoted to the Department of Agriculture to be a Deputy Director General. Again, I didn't spend much time there. I got promoted to be Director General in the then Siska administration. I was a Director General for about five years. Mm. There was a, in a bit of a skirmish, political skirmish there, a coup uh, by the then Brigadier Gozo, and I, that's when I left, you know, on an early retirement, believe it or not, I was 34 years when sure. I retired. Oh, wow. And then that's when I started, you know, NGOs like uh, IDT. Also, eventually, I became a consultant and started my own business. That's basically the background to all these years. Mm. And agriculture, you mentioned that you were drawn to it from a young age. You continued with it in your path um you know for our listeners who might not know um you also practice as a sangoma um and you have for many years i'm actually one of your grandchildren (laughs) (laughs) so how how have those two merged um your training as a traditional healer and your the work that you do as an agriculturalist uh, being a traditional healer has never been in my plans. Of course, you don't plan it. Uh, when I was when I moved from the Eastern Cape to Johannesburg, I started running my own businesses. But at some stage, you know, I identified that there was something wrong that I needed to attend to. That is when I was told, you know, through divination that I've got to take a. Um, I've got to respond to the call to become a Sangoma. Mm. I was not surprised because I'm from a family, both from my mother and my father's side of spiritual people in terms of being Sangomas. I I resisted first 
but eventually I responded. So I became a Sangoma in 19, 2006, 2007. Mm. I went for know, through that process. I spent about five to six months, and uh, I finished, and they took me home, Kotusa, and uh, after that, I started working. You know, strangely, I became a Sangoma. When, whilst I was training, I was also a CEO of our businesses, mm. you know, so that's how the two came together. But it's a long story if I were to explain, you know, how it came through that I should twasa. But I did. I've been to various places, you know, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Eastern Cape, trying to find out whether this was actually the case. Mm. All of them, without any fail, they said, you have a calling and we have to respond to it. Mm. That's how I ended up being a, a Sangoma and a Kobela. Now it's almost like 15 years that I've been and I've trained in excess of 350 to 400 people. Goodness. And they have healed in terms of people who are coming with different problems. I've healed in excess of 2,000 people. Goodness. And um, I'm still continuing, although I mix my business with my spiritual work because these two have, have to balance mm. if I want to, to sustain you know, my life. Mm. So your business, which is predominantly agriculture, and um, a big part of your life is your spirituality, is there, are there any intersections between these two worlds and... What have you observed? Uh, coming, to, coming to that, I would like to say, although initially I wanted to follow the career of being a medical doctor, I went there at the medical school in, in Natal. It was the University of Natal at the time. I spent two weeks and I couldn't settle. Mm. Uh, especially when we have to deal with the corpses, you know. Mm. I couldn't settle. That's when I went to Forte. At Forte, I started with BSC. Uh, in two weeks, again, this opportunity came for the, I mean, that brought this passari, which, which I needed. Mm. So agriculture, I must say that uh, I was driven towards it, you know, through spirituality. I don't think it was my choice. Mm. Now, having done agriculture, studied it and worked in it, and now becoming a, a traditional healer, a Sangoma, these two, I find them to be, to be working very closely and nicely because when I have to do uh, work relating to my career, it's not a big shift because agriculture is a spiritual type of uh, an activity. I like that you say that, and that is something that resonates so much um, with me. Agriculture is very much related to spirituality, just by looking at how the universe is, I don't know if I should say created, I mean mm. the air, the soil, which is the earth, and all the other elements that are required to grow anything mm. need nature right and um i've come to understand that as people as human beings our nature is that we are spiritual indeed 
if you look at uh, uh, nature, even if you read the Bible, any Bible could be Quran, Torah, could be the Christian Bible, but you'll find that uh, nature started, you know, from God because God created it, and then after that, people came, and then uh, this triangle of God, nature, and people is is an important one. Even if you look at various things that are happening around us you'll find that uh, if you break that relationship, there's bound to be a problem. Mm. So God created nature and uh, he wanted to to nurture nature, mm. you know, by bringing in people. And he gave them, you know, rules of the game to say, look, you will respect nature. This is how we are going to handle it and this and that and that. Within that triangle, that's where spirituality comes in. Mm. You know, if you don't have you know, that required spiritual, you know, uh, uh, I'd say possession, you'll find that you don't care much about nature. Sometimes other people, they wouldn't care much about God and they wouldn't care much about themselves. Mm. So that triangle is what life is all about. And and what controls it is the spirituality, you know, that brings everything together. Mm. From what I read, um, African people were aware of this connection between um, themselves and nature, and and of course their their sustenance as human beings. Um, and as a result, there were certain rituals or practices they observed um, in order to nurture that relationship with nature so that they could, you know, grow vegetables so that, you know, the livestock could be healthy. What is your understanding around that type of relationship? I know right now it's a bit lost because of colonization and urbanization, but what is your understanding of how our forefathers used to live in communion with nature um, for their own sustenance? I'll just give one example. If you look at uh, livestock cattle, uh, it's regarded as the wealth of uh, the African people, mm. uh, also in terms of the families. So a person would have maybe two cows, and then uh, those will grow to 10 and so forth. What they would do, they would keep the cows in the crawl. The crawl manure itself mm. is very important in fertilizing, you know, their crops, your maize and so forth. And then um, the crawl again, that's where you talk to ancestors. Mm. When, whenever there is a any need, there is a ceremony or, or there's a need to go and talk to them. You talk to them uh, at the crawl, what they call in Tosa Tanti, mm. which is the gate where you come in. Mm. And then you talk there to them. But the, the interesting thing is that uh, uh, even if the, the graveyard is closer, mm. but where you talk, it's at the crawl. Mm. So that shows you that uh, uh, the, the the crawl with the manure, with the animals that are kept there and so forth, there is more like a cycle mm. uh, where these come from one to the other. 
you know, the 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 manure would give would be taken to the fields to fertilize the 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 plants to fertilize the soil so that the plants can grow better. And then, it, you know, just before the the start of the planting season, there will be a ritual of going to the river where you go to announce, you know, to the broader ancestors of the family that the planting season is about to start. We ask for rains. We ask for good weather and all of that. All of those are done at the river. Then after that, start preparing the soil, you plant but that pl- that seed that you plant, it's not from the shop mm. or from the co-ops or whatever, because um, you use the original seed, which has been stored and, and and maybe kept in a manner where it won't be eaten by, you know, by the small animals, mm. you know, mm. you know your moths and all of that. Mm. So when the time comes for for ho- uh, hoeing, which is, uh, you know, mainly done by women folk. They would go there and do that, but it gets announced and uh, the ancestors are told. The rains would come when the time comes to harvest. Again, there's a ritual that takes place to inform, you know, the ancestors that there will be, you know, harvest. Mm. When you harvest, you you harvest and then you take the maize or whatever other crop or wheat, put it in a storage. They call it in course, but it's a storage basically. Mm. Put it in there. Then the the family starts, you know, locating it. It's going to be used for the main house, the other houses, and the neighbors who are mm. poor. The neighbors who are poor, they will be given also, you know, uh, maybe two, three to five bags of maize. Mm. Then they would grind it and, and eat it as millimil and all of that. But if you look at all of that, uh, that process, mm. it's very clear that uh, the family would follow all of those rituals when the maize or the wheat or whatever crop is there. It is used, you know, to fight poverty, mm. not only within the family, but the neighbors and all of that, because the neighbors also help when they, it's, it's the time to, to weed, mm. you know, the plants. There will be traditional beer that is prepared. There will be slaughtering sometimes of a sheep or whatever. And everybody is happy. Mm. So when they go to the river, the pastor there, you know, that was talked to the ancestors. That's the form of prayer. Talk to the ancestors to indicate what the situation is and maybe if there's drought to ask for rain and all of that. So it, it's a, it's a closely knit process that has got uh, love in it, it's got happiness. It has got a, a selflessness where people don't think about themselves only, they think about everyone. Mm. The cattle that are doing the plowing, that are doing the planting, are, are properly managed mm. in, in with love. You don't ill-treat them. Find that the other animals, like your dogs, they're quite important in the whole process. And uh, everyone is a family. So there's 
communication with the ancestors, there's communication amongst themselves. All of those things are done within a spiritual context, which is the African way. Mm. In terms of speaking to the process of speaking to the ancestors, right? Why do you think that is significant or what is the significance of communicating with the ancestors? I know there are other healers that are said to be rain queens. For example, you know, they can um, summon rain. Uh, they can communicate with the gods and then it, it can rain. Why do you think that is an important relationship or what is the nature of that relationship? Uh, firstly, I would like to say that, uh, that within the community itself, you know, there are leaders, you know, who are handling different aspects of the lives of the community. Within those leaders, you'll find that there are others who are given, who are gifted in this way or the other. Uh, those who are gifted in terms of being able you know, to ask for rain, you know, uh, are known. For example, in Venda, we know that there is a rain queen, and that person has been gifted to do that you know, by the ancestors and God. Mm. So he's a person who can go and, and, and plead on behalf of the community to get that, to get the rain. So, uh, Without spirituality, that person wouldn't be able to do it, mm. whether, whether they like it or not. It's not magic. It is a spiritual gift that uh, is given to the person, and the person would follow up. There are other gifts you know, that are given. For example, healers, other people would heal, specialize in healing on this and the other. But the most important thing is that it's driven by spirituality. Even the gift of being able to to do anything within the community, that's a God-given gift and uh, to your ancestors because it's obvious that uh, it can't just come out of the blue. Somebody must have, you know, uh, given that to you who also got it from, from the somewhere. ones yeah, who, who were before him. I like that. Yeah. It echoes the words of... Um, uh, a guest I had on the on on the show, and we're talking about family constellations. Yes. Um, and he was saying, nothing comes from from nothing, which just really echoes what you are saying, right? So it becomes important to to recognize that that relationship and the symbolism around it. It is yes. Um, that that's what uh, I didn't know myself uh, when I got the calling. Mm. I thought that uh, the calling is something that uh, you know comes out of a person, you know, um, out of your own, mm. you know, interest. You want to find that you get uh, anointed, you know, by your by your ancestors, maternal or paternal. They will say so and so is the one who's going to take over my work. Mm. Whether you like it or not, you will have to do to, to that because it, it is it is more like a relay. One runs for so much and then gives to the other, and then so it happens. Mm. It's not supposed to die. Mm. So we see the advancement in South Africa as a good thing, right? And sure, it is a good thing. But in the um, when when one relates South Africa to other African countries, it is the most um, 
urbanized in a sense that there's less we are seeing less and less villages so more and more people are moving to uh urban uh areas um where they are most likely going to disconnect with their way of life at home what do you think urbanization and colonization have contributed to the ability of african people to still observe relationships like that of spirit as well as the earth um uh, we were taught you know to believe that um, what is called modernization was uh, improving the lives of african people mm. uh you were told that uh, look the, your belief systems uh, are not helping you they are destructive to you they are antichrist and all such things but when you look back after you have been driven away from who you are to someone else when you look back you find that you have actually been demodernized mm. in other words you were modern you were demodernized in the sense that uh, you were you were pushed to abandon the sustainable way of life we which we we had so urbanization when you look at it in south africa it is nothing else but uh, impoverishment of people they have to go live they are rural areas go to the mines they have to go to uh, other industries they have to go and join farms where they work for other people living their own land all of that is is within a context of paying them you know in rent paying them minuscule wages they've been moved away from the crawls that we're talking about where they would communicate to their ancestors they are put in hostels you know if they are having houses they're given small piece of land they can't even grow anything there they, these people are used to keeping animals you know we have indicated that those animals are important in terms of their lives so all of this urbanization that we see especially in south africa it's a, it's destructive to say the least because people are taken out of where they should thrive and be um, and be sort of like a well to do people and put in areas where they are like slaves so urbanization is, is it's a problem because when you go back to those areas where these people come nothing is happening there the lands are not plowed you know uh, not cultivated at all they have, they no longer have animals the crawls are abandoned the ancestors who used to reside there are no more there so these people have been delinked you know from their ancestors what do you expect you'd expect that people are going to have all sorts of problems and challenges and they are going to have strange behaviors others you know what you see now crime rapes and whatever those are the result of uh, 
detribalizing people, deculturalizing them in the in in the guise of modernizing them, which is terrible. Even now, when you come come to township, you'll find that churches are, are all over. But those churches don't talk to the spirituality of these people. That is the African people. And now maybe once a year, people are going to go back to where they come from, to Limpompo, Eastern Cape, and whatever. What can you do in a week or two that you, you, were, you were deprived of doing in a year? So that's why we find that people have got serious problems. So a transition to me is terrible. It makes me very sad when I think about the state of the lives of black people. And I think we've become so accustomed to this modern way of life. I, I, I really don't know what's, what it's going to take for our people to see that they need to return to themselves in order to be whole again and to actually be human because, I mean... I go on Twitter in the morning and when I see what is trending, it's shocking. Um, so, so I know and I understand the magnitude of the impact it, it has on African people, on, on black people. And it's really, really very sad. <laughs> Nevertheless, the role of women earlier, you spoke about women being involved in the process. Women are naturally seed carriers because we carry the babies. Um, one almost intuitively knows what to feed your child, um, you know, what the family needs. Even when the seasons change, you know, so the menu in the home will be uh, different to accommodate um, the season that we are in. What role did women play in agriculture? Uh, contrary to to some beliefs, you know, or some people's, uh, you know, uh, belief systems, that uh, agriculture is a male-dominated uh, uh, industry. It's not like that, you know, especially in the African context, because in the African context, a family would have. Uh, uh, pieces of land to cultivate. They would have uh, communal grazing. They would have a garden around the household. And uh, everything that happened there in their fields, let's say three hectares, four hectares, or, or may maybe acres, and uh, in terms of the in terms of the animals. They would graze, the animals would graze communally. Women, even from the, as, as the earliest ages, would participate in that with, let's say, girls and boys mm. would work together in the fields, would work together to looking after the animals, hurting, you know, shepherding the animals. Even in terms of the garden, mm. it would be the young boys and girls and young women within the family. So it has been an integrated approach in terms of their involvement. There's never been any exclusion of women in any of those. Some women have been found to be quite strong in terms of their contribution to the family 
you know, agricultural activities. Mm. Now, when you look at the value chain, you'd find that uh, from primary towards uh, secondary or processing, you'd find that uh, women would be more and more involved in the actual processing, like, you know, grinding of the maize into mm. into mill mill, as well as also utilization of the product, you know, for different types, SEMP and all of that. So they would be involved. Now, when you look at commercial agriculture as it is, there are many women who are playing, you know, prominent roles within the industry throughout the value chain. You, you, no one can say, no, they can't be in this, they can't be in that. Mm. And also, when you look at the other, you know, uh, farming support activities, your finance, your marketing, your, your other activities, women are involved in those too. Mm. So... Um, and, and there's no way that you say you will exclude them. I don't know on what basis, mm. because they're part and parcel. Even in commercial farming, you'll find that uh, the farmer, the male farmer and his wife, kids and, and um, daughters, they'll be involved in that mm. and, and make it a success. Mm. So it's very important to, to involve women. But traditionally, if, even if we look at us at when, when we're still at Forte, you know, doing bachelor's degree. You'd find that women were fewer at some stage, but it, the numbers I'm improved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, improved. Even today, when you look around, even if you go on Twitter and other social media, a lot of women are leading their own farming activities, mm. you know. So there's a lot of opportunity there. There is. Definitely, there is a lot of opportunity, and uh, we know also of a lot of women who are leading in the various subsectors. The beef industry, a lot of them, they're even involved in breeding. Mm. Some, I mean, a lot are involved as uh, veterinary doctors, you know, looking after the animals. So uh, I don't think it's accurate to say that uh, women you know, are not involved or are less involved. It's it's almost balance as we speak. Okay. Mm. Whilst we are on the topic of diets and, and all of that, I've realized that when I eat certain foods, like whole grains, uh, more greens, I find that it's very easy for me to connect to spirits. Um what contribution do you think our diet or the type of food we eat has on our ability to to be grounded and centered and easily access um spiritual beings or ancestor spirits uh, that one is is a huge topic on its own mm. because when you look at uh, plants you look at animal products you look at uh, even wild plants you know, you'll find that there are plants that are edible that you could also prepare as tea that would help you to improve your connectivity with your ancestors spiritually. Mm-hmm. For example, Umbeap was one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, those people who don't understand, you know, a lot about Umbeap should understand that Umbeap can use it, use it as tea. Mm-hmm. It's a wild, um, plant. When you use a tea, you can burn it, you know, as an incense. You can um, 
you can even uh, you can even mix it with other things that you eat. Mm. So uh, even the type of uh, meat that one uses, you know, although I, I I really I wouldn't want to discourage people from using any. For example, pork. Mm. People say pork, you know, closes you your connectivity. I don't believe so because mm. pork is good. I like it, mm. but uh, the type of food you eat is very important in terms of uh, your your connectivity, spirituality, and all of that. Mm. Around the the food aspect, when one passes or when you go to different uh, ceremonies, you see there's quite a bit of offering of uh, different vegetables and fruits. What is the significance of that? Uh, you know, the spirits, uh, especially I mean, if I were to refer to the African spirits, uh, the, 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 the old people, the deceased, mm. when you talk to them, you communicate with them, you you would want to use what will attract them into the conversation so that there can be communication. So when you go to the river to what we call offering to Fraela, mm. you will use things like the teas, the millimillis, and all of that, mm. because that's what they used to use. Mm. And those types of uh, food are very important in terms of attracting you know, them, you know, to, to come closer and communicate. I found and I've read also in places like India, they use rice, you know, when they go to the river to talk to ancestors, hmm. you know, and burn certain incense. So, so th- those types of food are very important. And of course, you use a traditional beer, you know, to talk to them. And uh, the belief is that they will, you know, the communication channels will be open, they will respond. Mm. And indeed, it does work. Mm. Mm. The sustainability issue, particularly around food, is a big one in Africa, in South Africa, especially because of the levels of poverty we see. In agriculture, there's a lot of technology involved. People are finding different ways of meeting the demands of society, which would mean GMOs, right? I personally believe that GMOs obviously have a negative impact on people's health. I mean, you'd look at a 2kg chicken. The composition on the packaging would say 60% uh, chicken and then other things. What does that mean and what effect does that have on on our health? Right, you know, uh, GMO in short, it's a, it's a genetic, you know, um, modification. modification. Mm. You modify the genetic, you know, composition of that particular plant or animal so that it can grow faster. And uh, it is really not intended to fight poverty because those products, when they are ready, will be expensive and inaccessible to the poor in any event. Mm. 
So it is intended to to multiply the business as fast and as many times as possible for those who trade in that. So it's really not to fight poverty. Mm. It is to increase profits for those who, are, who have invested. Now, when you look at, you know, farming, I would say community farming, the way we discussed it earlier on, mm. it is within the abilities of the community and the households there to say we'll grow two, he- two acres, three acres of maize. They use their own seed that they've been using for all this is because every harvest, the, the household would keep a certain amount as a seed. So this is coming from years and years and years. So it's well tested and it's, it's resistant to certain diseases and all of that. But the GMO uh, seeds that are sold, you know, commercially, you'll find that uh, they would need certain types of, you know, pesticides, certain types of fertilizer, this and that. If you don't use those, your yield is going to be poor. Mm. So GMOs are good for those who want to have super profits, but they're not good for communities who are poor. Mm. Now, when it comes to the health issue, a lot of a lot has been written. That is why you find that uh, GMOs are, are now being driven out in terms of advanced or developed countries because they know that when you modify the genetics, uh, there is a lot that is going to take place. There, you destabilize that particular seed, and it is going to cause all sorts of things, hair cancers, and all of that. Mm. So um, that's why I was saying the best way to fight poverty is to support people in doing what they have been doing and improve their quantities based on that without introducing them to GMOs and all such stuff. Now, when you look at broilers, how can you have a, a 2 kg a bed? in five weeks, six weeks. Obviously, a lot of things, you know, have been used to get it, you know, to be, you know, to be two kgs. Mm. All of those things, when they come into your body, they're definitely going to disorganize a certain elements of your body and there'll be lots of diseases that you find there. So that, that's basically what is happening. But as a country in South Africa, we have been moved away from doing things the original way, especially Africans, mm. to do things in a so-called competitive world, which doesn't help us much. So what I suspect our government would do is going to say, look, to be able to be seen as a productive country, as, as an economically dynamic country, let us join them and mm-hmm. use GMOs, but it doesn't help the poor. Mm. Um, do you think they care? Uh, look, the, the way our government is structured is not the way our people have lived. 
hence there's a lot of coercion you know for people to accept the foreign way of living and uh, our people unfortunately are victims of the situation and what can we do mm. other than go back yes you know <laughs> that's the most inexpensive and simple way exactly. right exactly why do you think it's so difficult for people to embrace who they are black people uh as we indicated earlier on modernization in code is what we were introduced to through education through religion especially mm. christianity and all of that even in now in places like this in cape if you are a, a tribalistic family doing old the things the old way mm. you are frowned upon as as if you you are what they call amataba you know unconverted people and so mm. forth so most people I think there's a scramble to become a modern person, a modern family, and uh, that is hitting hard on a lot of people, because as soon as you leave who you are and want to be somebody else, you are bound to fail. At some stage, you are bound to fail. Even if you were to be rich and get a lot of money, be educated, that's not sustainable. At some stage, your spirits are going to call you. to go back and start to be who you are mm. which is what we're finding especially when we look at uh, as as sangoma look at spirituality of people issues of identity identity issues of uh, cultural activities doing uh, family cultures amasiko and all such it's really hitting a lot of us mm. as africans mm. So as an agricultural economist as a healer as a senior citizen as a PhD holder as a scholar what do you think Africa can offer the world if we were to go back to our nature as Africans because i think as you say countries want to be globally competitive it's in the interest of certain institutions and so on but i think the costs are so high you know we look at the past 30 years um since the change of government and we haven't really seen much progress other than tall buildings and lots of malls um but i think the quality of life of most south africans has deteriorated if anything if we were to go back to who we are as a people what do you think we could offer the world um i think the first thing that is important even when when you play sport especially things like soccer or rugby Or, or any other sport that is competitive globally you you shouldn't play according to how those people other people play you must play according to your own uh, gifts and capacity mm. uh, because if you want to play like what the americans play they will definitely outcompete you is the same thing as um, as life in general 
and culture in particular. If you want to deal with others in the world, deal with them according to what you are able to do best. Don't want to do uh, things the way they do them and think that we are going to compete successfully. Mm. Look at the Chinese. The Chinese were fortunate in that uh, they were never deculturalized, they were never detribalized. They are, they are, uh, their way of life, their belief system was never invaded. They were never converted to be anybody else other than themselves. Indians, the same. Now, when you look at those countries now in terms of their competitiveness with the world, they compete as themselves. And the Americans are worried, for example, about the, the Chinese because the Chinese are not competing according to the style or the way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So with us, unfortunately, I would say almost like 99% of what we do is based on the strength of other people and not our strength. Hence, even our economy is, is weak. We could have gold, we could have diamonds, we could have platinum. The way we trade in those, you know, in, uh, I would say lucrative minerals is on the terms of other people, not on our terms. So there's a huge, huge task ahead of us. And sometimes I believe that the Department of Culture and uh, what do they call it? Department of Culture and... Uh, mm, I don't know what's the yeah. full name, but yeah. That department, it, when it was established, it should have been established to work day and night to take our people back to who, uh, who they are. I'm not so sure if they're doing that. Even mm. if you look at uh, the African traditional healing systems, that's a huge, you know, uh, uh, gift that we should be using as Africans because it works. But we frown upon it and believe in what uh, the West gives us. As a result, we're nothing, even in terms of our, our religion. We worship according to what others do. As a result, uh, we are converts all over. We find Africans are converts of so-and-so. I mean, if you are a convert of somebody, obviously you are going to be under that person. Mm. So um, to me, it's a difficult one. I'm not so sure how uh, we will address We are addressing it in our own way, people like you me, who understand where the problem is, but the majority, even within families, my own family, some people are converts who believe, you know, so dogmatically in in foreign belief systems. What can you do? Mm. Schools. Our children in schools are taught from very early ages that your language, your culture your, is nothing. We're going to uh, grow you to a better culture, to a better language. to Which is whiteness. Yeah. It's a problem. So um, it's a major problem. And uh, even our political system, we are now fighting. Parties are fighting each other. 
based on foreign ideological systems to say no and yeah this and that but no one really argues about your our africanness what is it that we can do so that we can go to the world stage and and, and show them who we are if we have to compete obviously they'll find it difficult to beat us because our game we know our game, mm. but but we, we we play them according to their game. Mm. And um, you know what you're saying is so important because immediately what comes to mind is our indigenous plants are ways of healing. You know, there's so much illness in the world, and I think during COVID, so many people started using umflonyani, started mm. using this and that, steaming, futtering, you know, um, which is something that has been looked down upon, but then because there was a crisis, people went to it. In terms of health or the medicine space, what are your thoughts um, around modernizing African medicine or what we know to to make it and not modernizing in terms of uh, turning it into tablets right but in their raw form having our medicines in mainstream healthcare why are we not doing it because we've seen how much it works you told me about a story where a person had whose uh, foot was like literally rotting started taking your capsules and he got better so why are we not seeing more integration of our um, African medicines and herbs in the healthcare uh, space. Uh, it, it comes back to 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 what I've just said. You know, uh, in households, I'd use my own grandmother's household, maternal grandmother, because I used to be there most of the time. She had a garden. And uh, a lot of plants in the garden were like yomsonyanes and other types. And, and she would give you, even if you, you had no flu, mm. as a preventative measure. Mm. So it means... Like she, a vitamin. Exactly. So it means uh, she had the know-how of uh, sustaining a family. But all of those things have been abandoned and uh, now... We take our kids to clinics. Look, I don't have a problem with the clinic as long as it was integrated into the way of our life. Mm. Um, there are many other types. Those capsules I'm talking about is four herbs there that we have mixed in there. One of them is very bitter, so we had to put it into capsules. Mm. That Those four herbs are known for different elements in terms of uh, health. One is good in cleaning the blood, one is good in fighting this and this and that, but those are herbs. But even now, when you say to uh, educated people or modern people, that look, there's something that's herbal that you could be given, you find that people... They, they don't believe in that. But they're happy to take green tea. Yes, yeah. they don't believe in that. For example, even uh, when you look at, um, you know, um, even food, mm. food itself, you will find a lot of uh, white people use the herbs. Mm. 
mm. your colleagues and this when they cook their food. But with us, we don't anymore. When in fact, that's what we used to do, you know, uh, in the in the past. So we need to educate people even about herbs because if you use herbs in your food, use herbs in your teas, you know, chances of you getting attacked by opportunistic diseases are very slim. Mm. But we don't do it. But COVID did, in a way, change a lot of minds of people. Because eucalyptus, for example, people see a lot of eucalyptus around, but they wouldn't do anything about it. Mm. White oak, which is all over, I've got it even in my yard. If you use white oak, um, a, a, a bark, there's a lot that you can do, you know, to fight. Moringa. Mm. Why can't we have each home have maybe at least two Moringa trees? Because Moringa, you know, can fight about 45 diseases. Oh, wow. You know, but, and it's also very easy to, to grow. But that's what I think our government should be doing. Just getting basic things, you know, to people, you know, Moringa trees, give each family two. We have eucalyptus, give them to, then we have got, uh, um, you have got your, your Clonyane, Mbepo. Very mm. important. Each family should have, uh, at least three plants of Mbepo so that they can use it as tea, as tea, they can wash with it. Mm. It's also good. Other people use it as, I mean, they process it into soap. Mm. So, uh, those things, they don't cost the billions that we hear government talking about. They, they are cheap. But they don't do them. The ones that are billions, you don't see their impact. The ones they spend billions on. So, so it's, it's really an issue of um, not having the willingness, right? Exactly. Mm. Um, I'd like you to to address the issue of food insecurity in South Africa, in, in Africa, although we've spoken briefly mm. about it, but I don't think um, climate change is child's play. I don't think it's a joke. We are seeing it every day in our weather conditions. How can we address the issue of food um, insecurity in Africa or in South Africa? Uh, as I've indicated, food insecurity was introduced into the African communities by the colonies, apartheid masters and all of that, because people were moved from what they used to do best. In other words, that household farming, you know, that the family was participating on and they're producing enough for themselves and for the, for the neighbors as well as take to the market. Sometimes you're grinding your maize, you know, selling it to other people. So when they got dislodged from that and pushed, you know, towards urbanization, that's when food security, insecurity started. Mm. So, I mean, even chickens, families used to keep 10, 15 chickens and they would slaughter one, you know, time and again, you know, for the family so that they can get proteins and all of that. Mm. Um, also green plants, they used to grow those within their yard, mm. their gardens and uh, and so forth. So they would store surplus maize, you know. So they had food. 
throughout the season until the next season and then they would start the cycle again. Mm. I think the the fundamental uh, principles of that for me um, would be not consuming in excess, right? So if you have 10 chickens, you know, you know, you're, you're relying on the chickens for eggs, for instance, and then also for protein. But it also meant that you're not going to slaughter a chicken every day, right? Mm, so you're definitely. not going to have meat every day. Definitely. So our people did not consume more than what was required. And it also means they had, um, a diverse, uh, nutritional, um, diet. Definitely, you know, um, the households, they knew what to prepare for when. Meat was not eaten every day. I, I also, you know, got, uh, sort of got exposed to that mm. in the Transkai where my parents, you know, they sent me there to stay there for a year, studying there. So I, I got to be exposed to that. They had a plan in terms of eating. They knew best, you know, what is good for when. Mm. So there was enough food. No one had insecurity in terms of food. But at the same time, they knew, they planned very well. They knew start of the season, this is what we'll do and harvest. And then uh, next season starting at this time and all of that. So there was never a problem of shortage of food. But when men were moved to the mines and uh, because men are needed in certain in terms of certain types and also you know uh, money to to start doing these things mm. to to plow plant and all of that became scarce and then the family would get money maybe once in six months that's when things started to be a problem so food insecurity is something that was introduced and it could be reversed you know, one way or another. Mm. The second one, again, comes to this one of uh, climate change. Mm. Climate change does not only affect those who cause, who cause it. Mm. It affects everyone within that environment. So now, if you look at TV now, when you look at outside, there's a, the sun is so hot, you know, that uh, you can't believe it could be this hot at this time. Mm-hmm. In the past, it was not to be like that, but there's been disturbance of mm. the way nature is mm. resulting in in a climate change. And climate change, again, is a problem when it comes to planning because you will plan according to seasons, but things that never happened in those seasons are happening now mm. and creating shortages of food and prices going up, you know, the price of food is going up, you know, astronomically at this stage. Mm. And I don't think people will will in the future afford to buy food. Mm. So that's what causes food insecurity. But the best way really is to, is to uh, gradually take people back to where they used to be. And then um, through that, you could fight, you know, poverty and hunger. Mm. You spoke about cycles. Um, mm. nature has, has a cycle, right? Everything has a cycle. Um, and I think it's one of the things that we forget to remember in our everyday life. We see young people becoming more and more obsessed with instant gratification, 
wanting success now and as a result getting themselves into situations that are not very productive or useful for for them um and i think it mostly has to do with the fact that we forget that everything in nature operates through a cycle right um cycles helped us to understand how or when we could grow what nowadays even if it's not winter we see oranges and nachis in the stores there's a particular store that comes to mind which i will not mention what do you think consuming food or products that are not aligned with the seasons or the cycles of nature uh, what impact do you think that has on us if at all uh, I, firstly you know with the globalization you'll find that um, that those cycles you know have been disturbed mm. because uh, let's take grapes table grapes table grapes in our country you'll find that uh, they are ready around about november you know um, and then that's the time that we harvest mm. those um and then when you go to the other half let's say june july you find that uh, there should be scarcity of those because we we are not harvesting at that time mm. but we import and those will come from other countries in the north mm. and then uh, it means we will have a, a you know continuous availability of that particular product mm. if for example that product is is too much in terms of uh, sugars uh, according to the like i mean seasonality of those uh, mm. products we would have time of not having that product and having less of that problem of sugar mm. of that but because we have these all the time because of globalization and all of that for that our bodies are not rested mm-hmm. because if we don't have grapes we should be having something that is yeah yeah that is that complements that complements the grapes so that's why we, we find that uh, you know our bodies are exhausted with all of these because there's no time to rest them i like grapes but you know having grapes all the time it's detrimental mm. and uh, even with the other stuff mm. so um the the way the world has changed and is working now is to a disadvantage but to those who make money you know out of that there's no season because when it's off season with grapes they take they get them from elsewhere when they produce the grapes it's on season for them they export it mm. so that's how it happens mm. which is unfortunate but it's nice in the short term but in the long term it's a problem mm. because all the seasons you know god created them for a reason and a man now is uh, manipulating those for money and what can we do mm. in closing our, our conversation the seasons the cycle of life also um can be seen in in human in human life right mm. um what would you say around that so it's it's the it's nature the cycles of nature 
and our ability as individuals to observe that and to work within that framework? What opportunities lie there? Uh, opportunities, I would say, if, if our season, let's say summer, gives us maize and this and the other types of, uh, of crops as well as the animals, because animals, you know, they, they, they tend to thrive during certain seasons. For example, beef animals won't thrive that much in winter. But in summer, especially if they graze from natural grazing. Mm. So the opportunity there is for us to utilize nature according to what it is and work with it and work according to its guidelines. That is an opportunity. And it gives us a competitive advantage over the other people elsewhere who are having an opposite of what we have at mm. that time. So if we worked with the nature in terms of seasons and all of that, we would have a competitive advantage all the time mm. and would also impact nature less negatively. Mm. Now, the other very important point, you know, that I would like to raise is that uh, we find that uh, we use uh, uh, tunnels, these uh, plastic tunnels mm. so that we can manipulate the climate and all of that. that. That's good for cash and profits and all of that. But it's not good for the, the carbon, you know, uh, footprint. Yeah, yeah, carbon footprint of, uh, of our area. Mm. It's going to change everything and then, um, you know, carbon emissions are going to get out of control and all of that. Mm. So, uh, in terms of doing things the way you should do them, it is more sustainable. But in terms of rushing for more money, more profits, we tend to do things differently. So, we, 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 I mean, if we play right, things would be okay. But because we are in a world that is competitive in terms of what we do when, we tend to manipulate things and they play, I mean, things will be more will turn against us. Mm. So that, that that's where the problem is. Mm. Where do you want to play mm. is what is important. So understanding your values, what you value most and, and you know, leaning on that. Exactly. Um in, in terms of cycles um of nature, I think for me I've also learned that in my personal life it will not always be happy, happy, happy. You know, everything is great and, you know, there's excess and, you know. Um, but one should also understand that in our personal lives, there is a season for planting, for harvesting, for resting, so we can reflect on what we have achieved, on what we want, right? That's nature. Mm. Now, we... We've lost that. So we are no longer as reflective or not in alignment with nature. And as a result, there's so much happy unhappiness in people's lives. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, because our lives have been so much commercialized, we're always in a rush to have more and more uh, of this money that's circulating. You may have it, but the problem is that it's not going to be sustainable. 
you could have a lot of it, but you are going to lose a lot of things that you are not going to be able to control. Mm. So, uh, going back to what we said when we started, there's God, there's nature, there's ourselves. Within it, there's spirituality. Mm. Spirituality is such that you are not driven by material things, you know, to maximize the profits, maximize this money and all of that. If you are spiritual, you are going to be guided by saying, how much of this should I have? Have I not reached the ceiling? And so forth. But if you are not driven by spirituality, there's no ceiling. You just... One more and more and more, more and more. more. That's where the broilers are coming from. You you now are growing a chicken in, in six weeks, but now they're even wanting to do it in four weeks. So it means you've got to push in a lot of these undesirable chemicals within those animals mm-hmm. and still feed people. So we're shortening our lives, but happily so. Unaware <laughs> mm, yes. as well. Mm. Baba, um, any words of encouragement? Uh, surely, you know, I believe in hope. I believe in hope. And I read a, a quote by Steve Biko where he was saying, you know, we must not be... Um, um, destroyed by the hardships of life. I'm paraphrasing, mm. but we we must always, always have a hope. What would you say as some sort of encouragement? I know it looks gloomy. Um, it looks gloomy, but uh, there's a lot of hope, especially if we could look back to how our parents, grand-grandparents, and other people before us, Mm. how they used to survive with little. Mm. For example, I always say to people, my grandmother used to get about 10 rand, 5 rand a month. Mm. Then I was looking after about 20 grandchildren, Mm. comfortably so. Mm. But now... We go to somebody who's getting 15,000 rands a month. Of course, there's inflation involved. Who can't look after his or her own two kids. So things things are, are, are terrible because we get ourselves trapped into this expensive life. You know, expensive, expensive way of doing things and all of that. If we were to go back and be simple, that's why I like Bungoma. Bungoma, you know, takes you back to the basics of life. Mm. And if you stick to those, even what you wear, you don't have to wear designer clothes, you know, when you're at a Sangoma. Of course, designer clothes are good, but they must not uh, control you. Because if they do, you spend money day in and day out and have no money. But mm. as a Sangoma or as a traditional person, you you use good traditional attire mm. and have money to do other things and so forth. So why we 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 suffer is because we put ourselves under pressure, you know, to be competitive, you know, with other people. And at the end of the day, even if we have got a million or two, by the day you have to live, you have to die. You want to leave those things, mm. but you lived a life that was not self 
self-preserving, a life that was self-destructive. So there's hope in the sense that um, there are more and more people who, who understand, you know, this ancestral type of living, you know, mm. where out of a little, you know, a source of income, you do you know, much more impactful things and, and, and so forth. So there is hope. I see a lot of people, you know, uh, over the weekend I was with a family that were doing, you know, their s- rituals and ceremonies to go back to who they are, not who they are known to be mm. in terms of identity and all of that. And it was a good thing. And uh, so a lot of hope within that. So many people are going back and many people are looking at themselves in a different way, not looking at themselves in a, in this way of moving away from who you are in a fast pace mm. and wanting to be somebody different to mm. who you are. So I, I, there's hope. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Thank you so much for being in conversation with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. I truly hope you learned something new, felt something, and were inspired to cultivate a more conscious life. I'd love to connect with you, hear your thoughts and story. Please feel free to reach out. Our contact details can be found on montsem.co.za. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.